When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The last couple of cycles, the problems were either in the banking sector or the corporate sector. Perhaps we're going to go through a cycle where we see some real sovereign stress. And I think that will be a novel element for investors. Part two of our interview with Matthew McLennan, he assesses the risks and intriguing opportunities he sees internationally. Funding provided by ClearBridge Investments, First Eagle Investments, Royce Investment Partners, Matthews Asia, Strategus Asset Management, and women investing in security and education. Hello and welcome to this edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. The outlook for global economies in 2023 is not reassuring. The World Bank has slashed its 2023 global growth forecast to 1.7% from its previous 3% estimate, saying that the global economy is perilously close to falling into recession. The vast majority of central banks, especially in developed countries, are still tightening to fight inflation, therefore slowing economic growth even more. And in a recent survey of 1,200 global CEOs by EY, 98% expect a global recession, almost half expect a moderate slowdown, and more than half fear a recession worse than the global financial crisis in terms of its length and severity. From a contrarian point of view, maybe this is a good time to invest. Well, this week's guest is a leading global value investor. He is Matthew McLennan, co-head of the global value team at First Eagle Investments, where he oversees more than $80 billion in assets, including several mutual funds. His flagship First Eagle Global Fund is rated five-star by Morningstar with a bronze analyst rating for its cautious approach that has produced solid results. Since McLennan took over the fund from legendary value investor Jean-Marie Eviard in 2008, the fund has outperformed its Morningstar World Allocation category with considerably less volatility than the stock market. First Eagle is a sponsor of WealthTrack. Well, last week we discussed the risks and opportunities in the U.S. markets with McLennan. This week in part two, we asked him to assess the investment climate in international markets. How do they compare? The first thing I'd say is that the dollar has been very strong for quite a long period and has, has started to weaken um, in the recent, most recent quarter. And so one of the real opportunities in just looking internationally uh, for, uh, for investments is that there's an important potential moment for uh, currency diversification um, going on right now. Um, U.S. is a wonderful economy, uh, but it won't necessarily have a monopoly on currency strength, particularly if uh, the Fed is getting close to the end of its interest rate hikes. Um, and if we get a recession in the United States and the, that those interest rate differentials collapse, uh, then um, you know, the dollar may come under some more severe selling pressure. And, and so having the ability to diversify your currency opportunity set, I think, is important at a moment like this. The second thing is that um, the United States uh, is a more expensive equity market. Uh, and so uh, there's a pretty big valuation gap. And, and what we see uh, is that that gets mirrored uh, bottom up. Uh, not in all securities, uh, but in, in select investment opportunities that we would look at around the world. And so um, 
you know, when we, when we look at our international portfolio, it has a different sectoral composition um, than our US portfolios, uh, or at least within the global strategy, what we own internationally doesn't just mimic sectorally what we own in the United States because the opportunities to find businesses that uh, have attractive market position vary by sector. What are the differences? And in, in, I mean, and I know you don't invest by sector, you invest by individual companies. If you, if you look at um, the uh, US stocks that we own, uh, you know, we, we discussed some examples uh, in, in the previous discussion about uh, the healthcare industry, where there are some leaders in the United States or in the IT industry. Uh, where there are leaders and, right. and in the HCA, past we've analog devices mm -hmm. e exactly and in the past we've discussed a range of energy investments in the united states where i think the management teams are quite strong internationally however uh, we've seen more opportunities in uh, other niche areas for example household products um, if you think of a company like unilever uh, mm -hmm. which uh, has really powerful brands and things like um, you know, Axe deodorant and Dove soap and Sunsilk shampoo, uh, Persil and Omo laundry detergent. These are basic household products, uh, Hellman's mayonnaise, right? Um, but Unilever uh, trades at about two thirds of the multiple of say a Procter & Gamble. So you get a much, a much greater free cash flow yield um, uh, by buying an international household products company than maybe uh, a US equivalent. Um, to give you an another example, um, you know, we, we've been uh, fans of the, um, uh, the beverage uh, business historically because it's very stable and cash flow generative. Um, that gets well reflected uh, in the valuation of companies like Coca-Cola, which we don't own. It's at a very high multiple. Mm -hmm. um, but you can, if you're willing to look internationally, um, you could buy a company like Ambev in Brazil uh, for uh, roughly half the multiple uh, of a Coca-Cola. And yet Ambev in 80% of its end markets has more than 60% market share. It is the dominant brewer uh, throughout Latin America and the Caribbean. Now, those markets have cycles, political and otherwise, but brewing is a pretty stable cash flow generative business. And you're able, by looking outside the United States, to find a, a company like that. You know, there are, there are other sectors, um, I, would, I would say, such as the consumer discretionary space, particularly the luxury products area, where there's just not a lot of representation in the U.S. equity markets. And so one of our larger investments has been in Richemont, mm -hmm. uh, which is the holding company for Cartier and Van Cleef. Um, you know, these are jewelry maisons with over a century of, of history. And, um, you know, one area where we see just a huge amount of opportunity internationally is uh, holding companies, because sometimes you can get uh, uh, the opportunity to invest in businesses that in turn own stakes in other businesses right. uh, where you get a double discount where the businesses they own are cheap uh, and the holding company trades at a discount to the sum of the parts. So point being that the bottom-up composition of international markets is quite different from the U.S. market. Uh, and the U.S. Uh, doesn't have a monopoly uh, on good businesses. Holding companies used to be called conglomerates. They were very hot at one point and then they got extremely cold. What's your assessment of the holding company concept? It really depends on the nature of the management team. So in the United States, even though conglomerates are typically looked at negatively, selectively some are well viewed. For example, Berkshire Hathaway, mm -hmm. uh, where people Absolutely. are comfortable because of Warren Buffett's acumen and allocating capital. Uh, you know, an example of 
um, a holding company uh, where we think capital allocation has been good, uh, for example, is that the largest holding company that we own uh, in the Netherlands is a company called Process. Now, mm -hmm. this is a good example of the complexities of international investing because Process is listed in the Netherlands, but its largest investment is its near 30% stake in Tencent, which is oh, the Chinese online right. gaming company, uh, which also owns WeChat and has uh, an ecosystem of mini apps. Um, Tencent uh, is, has a very strong market position, uh, but you've been able to buy it at more than a 40% discount uh, through the Process Holding Company. And Process also, incidentally, has a series of other investments, uh, venture-style investments in the online business from classifieds to educational technology uh, and, and other fields. But you are able to basically get those for close to free given the holding company discount. If I come back to your opening question about holding companies, the difference here is that management are thoughtful capital allocators. They notice this discount, and so they committed to buying back stock in the holding company mm -hmm. uh, as long as the discount was too wide. And so um, they've been succeeding in starting to close that discount um, as the regulatory environment for Tencent itself uh, back in China is becoming more favorable. And so that's holding companies giving you the ability to get two sources of value creation in an investment as opposed to one. Why do you think that their value will be recognized? So in any given year, whether value is recognized or not is essentially a function of sentiment shifts. Yep. But as you extend your time horizon from one year towards five years or 10 years, what starts to dominate sentiment is arithmetic. You know, if, if we own these businesses at better free cash flow yields so they can pay us higher dividend yields or they can buy back more stock, then the arithmetic of the investment starts to shine through over time. As far as the business environment, what are the CEOs, you know, telling you of, you know, internationally based companies as far as what the prospects are for growth and how concerned are they about the tightening that's going on um, in Europe, for instance? So in Europe, I, I would say, generally speaking, that sentiment has been reasonably subdued, or, or, although I'd say probably slightly more constructive than uh, what we might have expected if we just mm -hmm. sort of read the newspapers uh, every day. Um, I, I think in part, uh, the worst case scenario for Europe hasn't played out thus far over the winter. They've had the benefit of a warm winter, which means that they've needed uh, less natural gas than they might have right. otherwise needed. We also saw, uh, by virtue of the, um, the, these companies anticipating the worst, quite a bit of adaptive behavior from management in the lead up. Um, but then we've seen some surprising signs of strength. For example, um, you know, we were speaking about Unilever before. They, they were pressured by rising input costs, but they're now seeing the ability to raise their prices. Um, and they're seeing about 10% revenue growth at the moment. And um, I think they're sounding more confident on their ability um, to restore their margins o over the medium term. We're seeing other companies, we, we mentioned Richemont, um, uh, where the markets are starting to sense that uh, China, which had been really um, on a negative trajectory last year between um, the zero COVID related lockdowns, the property crisis um, and, and the regulatory uh, pressures on the tech sector seems to be reversing all of those policies right now. And so there seems to be a little bit of enthusiasm uh, around some of the, um, the companies that may be beneficiaries of a, of a rebound uh, in activity in China over the next year. Now, you know, we have some pretty serious questions about the medium term outlook for China. Um, mm -hmm. But 
you know, at least in the near term, in terms of what we're hearing from companies, um, they're more constructive uh, on the near term in China. What's your sense of, uh, of business in China? We're definitely seeing signs that mobility is starting to recover in China just from conversations with various businesses and the way that companies that we own uh, are trading. Um, mm-hmm. uh, those that are sensitive to the level of industrial activity in China seem to have been bid up in the, in the most recent sort of month, despite uh, what is obviously a difficult situation as, as, as COVID-19 uh, virus rips through China at the moment. I right. think the markets are looking through that. Um, I think there's sort of a couple of longer term question marks. One is that, uh, you know, we went through a period last year in the early part of last year, energy prices were strong. But as China locked down its economy uh, and as the U.S. was releasing energy from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, energy prices drifted lower throughout the course of the year. Some of those forces could reverse, which could be a headwind for the, the world economy if energy prices were to go up again. If right. mobility is increasing in China and the U.S. needs to replenish the strategic petroleum reserve. And given that uh, energy companies haven't been investing a lot uh, in incremental capex, um, you know, were energy markets to tighten again, um, that could be a headwind to China and, and to the world uh, economic growth outlook. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for China specifically, um, even though there may be a, uh, a rebound, if you will, uh, from the reversal of uh, policies that didn't make much sense. The medium term picture is quite challenging for China. Um, Their demographics uh, with the lagged effect of the one child policy are are much worse than than ours. Um, The scale of the malinvestment in real estate is epic. So even though they're putting in in place procedures now to ease some of those pressures, the fact of the matter is they have a large overhang of malinvestment uh, Mm -hmm. in the real estate sectors, which will take a long time to work through. And then, then finally, it's, it's fair to say that the government, um, you know, has m- maintained a firm hand uh, on the economy. And so it's not exactly the recipe for productivity growth um, right. accelerating. And we've seen, a, a, you know, actually a decelerating trend of productivity growth in China. And so I, I think the combination of debt, uh, property overhang, um, the role of the government uh, in the economy uh, and and difficult demographics, aside from all of the geopolitical stuff, um, it, you know, are some meaningful uh, medium-term questions about China. Japan, you have been a longtime investor in very specific Japanese companies. Uh, Japan now has inflation, uh, you know, for the first time in several decades. Uh, they are encouraging wage increases. What's the situation in Japan? So we, we, we are seeing um, a little bit of inflation come through the Japanese economy, in part because the yen was very weak, in part because of the, 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 the pressures that have affected the globe. But it's still quite muted relative to the United States. If we look at wage inflation in the United States, if I look at the Atlanta wage, Fed wage tracker, for example, it's been growing about 6%. Um, in Japan, wage inflation has been closer to 2%, so far more muted. But it is some signs of uh, inflation in the market. And so uh, and, and everyone knows that Japan has had its issues, right? It, like the discussion on China, it's had problems with um, debt and demographics right. and, and deflation. Um, but it, it, it's also been true that we've found in a difficult macro environment some fine companies. Um, and, you know, I... I think if we were to see a period of inflation, companies that have stronger market share positions uh, ought to be able to sort of pass that through. 
uh, and experience some amount of sales growth. Um, the, the question that's a little bit harder to answer is, what is the effect uh, if inflation persists in Japan? And if it results right. in a high, higher level of interest rates, that currency could be under quite a bit of appreciation potential, which works against the inflation. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, Japan has a lot of macroeconomic challenges uh, to deal with, but they have some fine companies. And, and so an example of a, of a company in Japan that, that you have held for a while and will continue to hold. Over the years, our largest uh, industrial investment in Japan, which was in Fanuc, the world leader in CNCs and robotics. Um, now that's, that's a, a wonderful company with a very strong market position, uh, which would endure very extreme environments because it has net cash on the balance sheet. But it is gonna be somewhat sensitive to the fact that if the yen were to appreciate a lot, um, it, it might impact their cost structure adversely. On the other hand, there are some more domestically focused uh, Japanese companies. And, um, you know, our second largest industrial holding, and it's, and it's hard to think of it as an industrial, um, it's really more of a commercial services company, is a company called Seacom, uh, which um, has over 50% market share in um, commercial alarm systems in Japan. And uh, rather like um, other services business, if you have the density of position, uh, you can service all of those locations much more efficiently than your competitors. It's not a business mm -hmm. that has a lot of growth, but if you had inflation in Japan, given their market position, they could pass it through. So it's almost uh, trades like a tip, right? Uh, like a, an inflation protected bond, because even though it's a stock, it has a strong market position without a lot of growth, but it has a degree of pricing power. So, um, you know, you could buy JGB with a close to a 0% yield, or you could buy a CCOM with about a 6% free cash flow yield um, in a very stable position. And so companies like that don't offer a lot of excitement because they don't have a, a rapid growth profile, but they're very resilient. And um, were the yen to appreciate, it wouldn't really impact their business in, in any negative way per se. So Matt, looking at the opportunities uh, in, in the international markets versus the US markets, you've discussed that the many equivalent companies with the same you know, leadership and resilience uh, qualities, the qualities that you look for in a company uh, that the international counterparts are in, frequently are less expensive and therefore more attractive from your perspective as a value investor. Do, uh, do you envision uh, the, the mix in your you know, portfolio leaning more heavily towards the international companies? Is, is that where you're finding more value that it would actually, instead of being kind of 50-50 between the U.S. and international, that it would be more international? Ultimately, it's very bottom-up for us. I think if I, if I just looked at it top-down, I'd probably say that that would make sense as a proposition. But bottom-up, we've still managed to find some pretty good businesses in the United States. And so every time we think we're going to veer off in the direction of just owning more international stocks, we've found incremental opportunities in the United States. And so um, I, I think the key thing for us is looking at the world, looking at it globally, um, and, and basically just committing capital where we see the right businesses at the right price. And um, that could even include uh, emerging markets, as we've discussed. One investment for a long-term diversified portfolio, again, thinking about um, in your international opportunities, uh, what would be a, a good addition to a long-term diversified portfolio? To give you an example of what we might own in emerging markets, because when people think of as emerging market investing, they think of high risk uh, yes. investing. Um, but let me give you an example of something that's a holding company uh, in an emerging market, and that is um, a company called FEMSA. Now, it, it happens to be listed in Mexico, 
And um, what's interesting about this business is they had their origins in the beer business. They sold their domestic beer business to Heineken a number of years ago. And so they, they now have a 15% stake in Heineken, which mm. is a very stable, globally diversified business. Um, they built a position as a Coca-Cola bottler. And in fact, they, they own um, nearly 50% of Coca-Cola FEMSA, which is the world's leading Coca-Cola bottler. So again, stable business across many countries um, just happens to be controlled by a Mexican holding company. They uh, independently control a network of stores uh, throughout Mexico, Mexico called OXO. And these are kind of like the 7-Eleven uh, of Mexico. They have uh, nearly 20,000 uh, of these stores and um, they have total density uh, and uh, volumes are recovering uh, from, from COVID in terms of the retail traffic. They have the ability to grow their store count at a measured pace over time and participate in, in the growing nominal spending of Mexico as it recovers from COVID. And so here you have a holding company that's cheap relative to the sum of its parts, happens to be listed in Mexico, but they've been incredible business builders and they own stakes in companies themselves that are quite defensive and cash flow uh, generative. Now, it sounds so interesting. And, and the, the fact that they are based in Mexico, is, is that an, an automatic discount to if they were actually you know, based in the US or Germany or whatever? There's been windows of time where I think it's weighed on, on the sentiment around the stock, where, where there's been negative sentiment around emerging markets, where we were able to build uh, our position in the last couple of years. Um, and I, I would point out as well, the Mexican uh, peso has been quite depressed relative to the dollar, but it's, mm -hmm. it's been uh, fairly strong uh, in the last quarter. And, and um, you know, that's a currency that offers meaningfully higher interest rates. Um, and uh, you know, ultimately, Mexico is our neighbor. And if the, if the US does well over time, I think that serves Mexico well. Um, and you know, both countries have their issues. Uh, but I think that the essential co-location of Mexico and the United States uh, make it a beneficiary of some of the, um, the issues that might be going on between China and, and the United States. Matt, in the interview that you and I did recently about the United States markets, uh, you mentioned that, uh, that there, there is some vulnerability uh, in the U.S. Treasury market, possibly for a, a number of reasons. Where do you think there could be uh, a financial crisis or financial shocks in the international markets, given this kind of seismic shift we've had from low inflation and low interest rates to higher inflation and higher interest rates? It's, it's a great question. And I think, you know, in, in some ways, the challenges in the United States are, are mirrored by some of the challenges internationally. If we look at what happened in the wake of COVID is that the growth in debt was most pronounced in the government sector around the world because we had this very accommodative fiscal policy. And so as interest rates not only move up in the United States, but are starting to move up in Europe, um, you know, we're keeping a close eye on markets like Italy that has mm -hmm. a lot of debt um, and, and has not had strong productivity growth. Uh, we saw challenges in the UK uh, last year. And you mentioned uh, as well that Japan is grappling with unwinding of its yield curve targeting and, and Japan is an indebted economy. So, uh, and we talked about the troubles in China. So uh, I, I guess cutting a long story short, uh, you know, we see challenges um, in the sovereign sector globally. And I think this may be one of the things that differentiates the next cycle from the last. The last couple of cycles, the problems were either in the banking sector or the corporate sector. Um, perhaps we're going to go through a cycle where we see some real sovereign stress. 
And I think that will be a novel element for investors. You've traditionally held a, a, about a 10% position in gold. Is that, again, something that will, will offset these potential shocks uh, that could come from the government debt sector? Yeah, no, we, we, the way we've thought of gold is exactly that, as a potential hedge uh, against the agency issues attendant to, to the way sovereigns run themselves. And, and so we currently have around 15% uh, of our portfolio in a combination of bullion uh, and, and gold miners uh, as a potential hedge. And then, you know, to the extent that we don't like what we see top down in terms of policy, you know, excessive debt and poor decision making, what we've tried to do, in addition to owning the gold as a potential hedge, is to focus on individual companies that we somehow feel are, you know, quite solvent, you know, often with net cash or very strong balance sheets, where we, we want to align ourselves with management, where management's got a long-term track record of capital allocation that's accretive, um, and where the market position is stable and often diversified across many countries. And so, ironically, owning good businesses can be a bit of a hedge against poor sovereign policy as well. And so it's that combination of good businesses and the, the ballast, if you will, uh, in, in the potential hedge of gold that we hope will see us through this kind of turbulence. All right. Well, it certainly has in the past. So, Matt McLennan, thank you so much for joining us once again from First Eagle. Thank you so much for having me on the show. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is continue to hold a comfortable amount of cash in your portfolio. As central banks tighten, recession risks are growing. The rapid reversal of credit conditions from extremely easy to tight are bound to cause economic and financial dislocations, if not financial shocks. Having liquidity as both a buffer against market declines and dry powder to deploy when opportunities arise is called for in this era of seismic macroeconomic and geopolitical shifts. Well, next week we will sit down with the incomparable Burt Malkiel on the 50th anniversary of his investment classic, A Random Walk Down Wall Street, Why It Has Stood the Test of Time. In this week's extra feature, Matt McLennan shares what he does to unwind and refresh his mind. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. We are so glad you could join us for this edition of WealthTrack. Have a relaxing weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.